consulting room with two people in it. One of them is talking, the other one is listening. Both of them need help. Hello and welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norm. Today we are walking the very fine line between fiction and non-fiction with A.K. Benjamin's book, Let Me Not Be Mad. It's an immersive, provocative investigation of madness uh, and I absolutely loved reading it. So I really wanted to introduce you to A.K. Benjamin, also known as Alistair, uh, and his incredible work. Throughout his life, Alistair has found himself drawn to extreme behaviour as a screenwriter, a monk, a counsellor for addicts, a support worker for gang members and ultimately a clinical neuropsychologist. His book begins as a series of superbly realised clinical encounters with anonymous patients, some recently traumatised, some on the brink of mental collapse and others already in freefall. But with every encounter it becomes increasingly and disturbingly apparent that what we are reading is not about the patients at all. It's about the author's fevered descent into mental illness and mania as he confronts his own traumatic past. I invited Alistair himself into the studio to tell us more about this wonderful genre-bending book. But tell me a little bit first, I, I kind of want to hear from you, like your journey to writing the book. Like how long did it take you to write? What kind of sparked the idea in the first place? Like where did it come from? <laughs> so um, I was, uh, uh, I'd been working for maybe... 10 years in a large hospital, a large urban hospital, and I got a sabbatical um, to go to Asia to look at um, different approaches to neurological problems. Uh, and it was it was in Asia um, that I, I started to sort of journal. I was pretty exhausted from working in the NHS, and I started off journaling uh, because that's what everyone else seemed to be doing, uh, all, all these kids on their gap years. Uh, but after a week or so of that, I got really bored of the sound of my own voice. And I wanted to um, turn this sort of emotional raw material into something uh, that had a reader in mind rather than, uh, rather than just myself. And, and it, and it kind of led to a process of elaboration. First of all, taking real incidents from my life and giving them a spin. And then sort of adding to that... Uh, bits from the imagination and fusing the two together. So quite quickly, I became a little confused where uh, the line between what had really happened to me and what might have happened to me in, uh, if I'd nudged things to two degrees to the west, uh, where, where that line was. Mm. And from that, over, over maybe over the course of a year, year and a half, I, I, I produced this book and, and, the, and the sort of... I, 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 and, yeah, and... and it can, almost with each pass, with each uh, going over it, I wanted to, you know, elaborate it more and make it a bit more juicy. Make the chronology different, turn it into a thriller, then have it as a uh, as a sort of yeah as a romance, uh, and then as a quest, and et cetera, et cetera. It gave it different incarnations. Yeah, because that's kind of what I liked about the book was it kind of mirrored how I think I felt about neurology and, and the science of the body. And it's kind of like I thought it was very straightforward. You know, I think especially as kind of somebody who would just be a patient, you mm. kind of think, like, oh, you know, the, the, the psychiatrist, the doctors, the, the, the science on the paper knows everything. And actually, it's kind of this shame with genre. I kind of think like, oh, this is this kind of book. And actually, you kind of kind of like leading us in different directions shows that it's not just a linear yeah, I, thing. Yeah. Uh, and I think, w I suppose the moment of implosion came for me when I was thinking, uh, you know, maybe it was the thousandth time I was 
diagnosing a patient with a uh, a, a brain disorder. Mm. And I, there was something about that particular day uh, whereby I just um, became suddenly and strangely aware of the expectations that the patient had of me, the expectations of being sober, of being expert, of mm. being in control of my feelings. And then the difference between those expectations and what might actually be taking place in mine or any doctor's mind at that particular time. And then the flip side, the other side of the mirror is what all of this sort of rehearsed propriety and good manners and decorum uh, in the face of this other person's suffering, the, the suffering on that morning of this particular woman who was a little bit younger perhaps than, than uh, an average patient of mine, who was a little bit messier in some ways, who, was, who didn't recognise the boundaries. It was enough to nudge me towards thinking about her suffering in a way that I'd become used to, in a way that I'd armoured myself against. And, and I, on that particular one, I found, I found it very hard to keep it together, to get, keep my own feelings in check because her suffering was so alive that this woman was going to be maybe dead in three or four years and her life from this moment on, a life that was dense dense with family uh, and complication, was just going to unravel and there was nothing I could do about it other than to diagnose it. Uh, so so that disintegration on both sides of, of me, the doctor, but also that sense of the patient disintegrating and me not having professional boundaries in that moment to guard myself against that sense. Do you think that it's there's a kind of mythology around the um, the history of your profession, and maybe it's always been kind of a bit more self-reflective than we thought? And okay, so there yeah. are there are there are there are a few, but not many strains of medicine mm. that really consider the presence of the doctor and the interaction of the doctor in the dialogue, and how that might affect the way that decisions are made about the patient. Mm. Most often. It's a very taken-for-granted process with no real subtlety. And I, I suppose the starting point for me in the book is we, 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 see, um, we see maybe 40% of patients whereby we can't help them because we don't understand what's going on. Mm. And what we tend to do is put those patients in, in different types of boxes that constrain them. And because of the way that we constrain them, it appears, their problems get worse and worse because we have found ways of not listening to them, of not allowing them to be heard. And that includes the impact that we have on these people uh, and the way that that constrains them and makes them go into their shell because they don't seem to fit particularly well into the uh, frameworks we have for understanding. Mm -hmm. And I think there are different ways of thinking about ourselves and our presence in the room and how that interacts with the patient that may allow for a certain kind of curiosity and openness to problems that don't immediately fit into you know neurological taxonomies or diagnostic categories yeah because I suppose the diagnosis is quite fluid like something that you might be diagnosed with now might have been a different diagnosis 10 years ago and and having that kind of there's that there's there's the fluidity of the diagnosis and there's also the sort of fluidity of these this major diagnostic interface between what is neurological and what is psychological mm. and psychological tends in a medical setting to get put in some sort of catch-all bin for uh, and uh, and uh, and bannered difficult patient 
uh, or time waster, even worse. Uh, and yet, as things become more subtle, take something like pain, where there's obviously a psychological as well as a neurological component, and those two are, uh, are very fluid, the crossover between the two. And therefore, the way that we interact with the psyche of the patient is having an outcome on their neurology in some subtle ways. Um, the kind of crossover between science and literature, I think, is something that's that's really interesting. Have you always been a reader? Have you always kind of, and do you think a lot of people in your profession are? Oh well, um, I'll answer the second part first. Mm. I did uh, a study of doctor-patient interactions, which required a kind of IQ test for uh, junior doctors, junior neurologists. And, of course, they do spectacularly well on things like perceptual reasoning and verbal reasoning. But when it comes to general knowledge, people didn't know who Lewis Carroll was. People don't know. Uh, people can't name Shakespearean comedies. People didn't know who Martin Luther King Jr. was. So there are definite limits to their intelligence and their uh, literateness. I don't... I, uh, uh, my background, I, I had a career in something that was more literary before I was a doctor. I've always always found it uh, uh, an important part to understanding. It literature contributes an understanding to how I understand other people and uh, my capacity to empathise is, is based to some extent on, on how I've grown as a reader. So it's been crucial to my uh, clinical work and, and I think, I hope, it's led a kind of depth to how I, under, you know, my my sense of anthropology and the subjectivity of other people. Um, when it came to writing, I, I think often I found that um, literary influences more than clinical or theoretical influences, uh, medical theoretical influences, came to fore because I was trying to write about interactions that were a bit juicier, a bit more alive, a bit more dynamic and complicated and messy than what you normally get in case studies and this no, this convention of case studies is often to just dry out interactions and make them uh a little bit more algorithmic a bit of a bit of more he said she said he said he she said so he did this and this and then she responded in this way Th things that feel quite dead on the page and i think literature allow if you allow literature to infuse those sorts of conversations a little bit then you bring something to life more and that's what case studies should be they should be an attempt to bring something to life rather than to just uh, uh to to to, uh, to map a success story or a failure yeah do you think that's something to do with potentially the way we educate ourselves we're very segmented in the boxes that will the, the roots will go down as, as even children do you think and i think you've you've managed to have like a breadth of both yeah, I think yeah, I think that's. I mean, my 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 education was certainly very very boxed in. It wasn't until I was sort of seventeen, and there was one teacher who was just a bit chaotic and blurry, and liked to talk about different subjects that that that, that idea of the syllabus was cracked open for me. And mm. from there on in, I didn't really like. I, I I studied literature at university, but I spent a lot of time uh, uh, reading uh, philosophy and uh, reading work in translation and then reading anthropology and found ways of sort of crowbarring that into a syllabus, back with into the syllabic requirements. Mm. Similarly, when I was doing um, clinical training, I uh, always tried to find ways of bringing existing interests that were apparently uh, marginal into the central ground and I think that I think as long as you've as long as you're uh, meeting the basic requirements of your subject uh, for good practice then I think it's helpful to have that yeah because um I really liked um I don't know if you've seen the, the Guardian reviewed your book very very well and they said um, it's a genre defying wake-up call of a book 
when when they describe it as a wake up call is that is that the kind of thing that you're kind of going for obviously it's an exploration in general but if you were waking people up from something what what would it be well i think one one thing that i'd be wanting to wake up people from is that is these are these narrow classifications of what it is to be a doctor and how it how to interact of what it is to have a mental health diagnosis and how to understand that and how to treat that um of what it is in the culture at at large uh which is supposedly there to serve us that actually drives us to different states of distraction and suffering Uh, i've been talking about um very healthy uh more organic, holistic relationships with patients. But the book also dramatises something beyond that, where maybe that approach lapses into something uh, which is unhealthy and which has got a kind of mania to it, where uh, boundaries aren't preserved and the line between doctor and patient becomes um, disturbed and confused. And uh, just to, to show, to illustrate that, you know, that, Clinicians, doctors, experts in general, even in the field of mental health, are obviously susceptible to uh, to the mental health problems that they that they uh, that they uh, work with, mm. and that was. I, mean, I certainly, particularly in my twenties, certainly struggled with different aspects of being alive and met criteria on different days for different kinds of mental health diagnoses. And found some of my interactions with uh, experts helpful, but often didn't find them helpful at all. Found them uh, troubling, exaggerating, pathologizing, and that it was something of that experience that um, initially made me retrain as a clinician, and 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 then later it was something of that experience that drove me to write the book that had an influence on me writing the book. Do you want to talk about people that have influenced you, like the writing process and? Maybe specific authors. Yeah, I think I've become really, really excited by fiction and non-fiction that occupies that um, borderland between the two and particularly Mm. thinking about how there are certain contracts with a reader that are set up in non-fiction where the reader uh, is put into a kind of spell of trust um, by the implied expertise of the of the non-fictional writer in his particular subject and there are certain expectations of style and propriety and storytelling and and I like the way that particularly a writer like Emmanuel Carrere uh, to some extent Jeff Dyer will take that trust and find really delicious ways of subverting it to give the reader uh, a sense that in fact uh, the ground is now the ceiling and uh, what should be kept from us about the author is in fact now centre stage and he's spilling his guts out and how can he do that when he's supposed to be telling me about something neutral and uh, of historical interest how can he just uh, insert himself in that way uh, and and I think we've, we've only just begun really to explore um, uh, how those contracts might work uh, between a, a reader and a, a writer, say, of literary non-fiction. Or perhaps on the other side of it, someone like, um, I don't know, Ben Lerner in, 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 in fiction, who's writing, who's 
clearly writing a novel, but a novel that's so closely and self-reflexively interleaved with his own experience with it, and, and obvious biographical detail that, you know, that once again you can't make easy decisions about uh, where truth and falsity st- start and stop and how form uh, and literariness uh, are serving both biography and storytelling. Uh, do you think that's that also, or maybe in the future, influence this? That will maybe hopefully make the argument more complex about this idea of fake news and and who's to trust and and who's weaving a narrative around us. Like, hopefully, that will cross over uh, yeah, in, in a more nuanced way. About I mean, I think it's the fact that there is complexity uh, that's inherent in that understanding that allows for something like fake news. But I think it, I mean, it drives us to take more responsibility for what we think of as reality and what we think of as subjectivity and to if we can you know that books like theirs allow us to scrutinize the assumptions that we carry about uh, what is ours and what is someone else's about uh, with regard to experience and therefore and this is something I'm, I'm writing a a sort of sequel to the book at the moment and this is something that I'm particularly interested in, is that we carry around in our heads as doctors and patients as lovers as students as teachers a notion of what belongs to us of what is our experience and what is our thoughts and what is our predilections and our passions and as soon as we start to scrutinize these that notion of ourness of things belonging to us starts to disintegrate and we and we get the sense perhaps on very very disturbingly at times that we're in fact what what is most intimately ours belongs to someone else or has been put in us by something other than us and then what do we do with it if it's not if it's not ours and we're carrying it around then then who are we you know there's a, a huge implication for our notion of selfhood there and I suppose because we, we've moved into a kind of quite individualistic kind of society and especially moving away from religion and, mm. and other kind of like and, and superstitions, I guess, of, of like um, years past, mm. we're kind of moving into an individualistic state that's mm. so, that can be hard to negotiate, I guess. Mm. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. And, and, just to, and it also ties in very much with what neuroscience uh, has had to say about... Uh, notions of identity and subjectivity in recent years, the the the, the idea that uh, that that those those phenomena which we regard humanistically as most central to uh, what we are, that they feel substantial, that we feel like we can just body them forth and allow them to speak for themselves, are in fact under from some certain philosophies just epiphenomena, things that are created uh, as an accident. By processes, uh, by the processes of sensation and perception, that s- that selfhood is something that just happens somewhat, s- somewhat in the background over these things to allow us the fiction of coherence. Mm. Um, a lot of our listeners are also kind of aspiring writers or people who have studied literature. Um, what would you say to those people that are trying to write these kind of like these genre bending kind of pieces of work and is there anything that you kind of went into the writing process thinking and then came out did the book change you as much as you created the book I don't have any um, concrete guidelines other than you you need to create a lot of uh, ambitious mess in the first instance throw it against the wall and see what sticks and maybe you know maybe of 20,000 words uh, 500 of them are are worth going to surgery on 
but out of that and out of out of a lot of hard work i think you can i think it's possible to especially if you feel that dissatisfied with a lot of the things that you read in whatever genre that that dissatisfaction can drive a kind of formal ambition i think and uh I, 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 we've all got singular experiences and i think that uh um the ambition has to be to try and singularize the way that you write about those uh, those experiences as well and f- and and find something by uh by a kind of passion a passionate wish to uh break through existing conventions and uh, uh, that you carry a force and a wish to bring some one other person along with you you know we were talking the other day about how um it seems like a lot of books these days in a sort of middle-brow way, uh, encourage the idea in the reader that I could do that. And that seems to be central, a tacit but central part of the contract. I could I could write about that in that way. F- for me, the most exhilarating experiences I've had in reading are when I've known that I couldn't write that, that only the person that's written it by dint of talent and hard work and artifice and sophistication of the sophistication of their thinking about the reader's experience has made it singular and theirs and that I'm I'm happily uh, in a position of being theirs for the taking and that, that only they could have written that and I think that that that's a maybe it's an old and romantic notion of authorhood but it's what it's one that I, I still stand by Thank you so much for listening to the Vintage Podcast. Uh, Let Me Not Be Mad is available now, so do grab a copy uh, if you're interested in the incredible ways Alistair's mind works. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Vintage Books. Tell a friend if you enjoyed this episode and leave us a review if you fancy. Until next time. Mm